Hello, this is Melissa, and it's the second day of February, 2023, and this is Real History. And thank you for tuning in. Today, I'm going to be joined by Jim in Indiana. Are you there, Jim? I sure am. Glad to be here. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to join me, and I'm really looking forward to this. We've had an opportunity to talk a few times over the last few months, and I've enjoyed talking with you. And we had a good conversation yesterday, and one of the things that we talked about, I asked you a few questions about when you began and how you began to question reality as it was presented to you. And you shared a little bit of that with me. I think that it was interesting, and I I thought maybe you'd want to launch into, like, Vietnam and CBS News and all of that. Yes. While I was growing up, I was born in 1961, by the way. Okay. And as far back as I can remember there being a TV, there was a broadcast news event that happened every afternoon by Walter Cronkite, and it had to do with the Vietnam War. So I might be five years old at the time when I'm really hearing all this talk about what's going on over in Southeast Asia and and really not knowing anything about it except that it is on the news every night with Walter Cronkite telling us, and that's the way it is and then given the date. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it it had me questioning, you know, <laughs> from a real young age, what are we doing there? It, I was really confused about why this was happening. Why are people traveling so far to be in conflict? And it remained a question. You you told me yesterday that your parents maybe they were like independent in their politics, but they it wasn't a really political household where there was a lot of arguing or talking about politics. Do you recall if they had if they were vocal in what they thought was going on in Vietnam? There there wasn't anything really voiced or vocalized concerning that. Uh, you know, I. Sp- I seem to remember a lot of worry going on, but uh, I might interject that my dad was in the Korean War, and, you know, he was there when he was a young man, and I don't think his experience there was very good. He didn't ever talk about it. He seemed to be set apart from anything that had to do with... Uh, war and killing and that sort of thing. And my uncle, on the other hand, was in the Korean War, but he was in a a bomber. He, he was one of them guys that sat in the bubble on a bomber. I think it was a B-17 and ran missions over Viet, or over Korea, South Korea, or North Korea. Mm-hmm. And my dad just did not take up any speech about it, and it seemed to be kind of a hushed matter as I was growing up. And your uncle coming back from that, was he vocal about his experiences or his thoughts? He, 
he he didn't really relay too many thoughts. He talked about his missions and and being shot at and plane being hit and so forth, but he really didn't get into any kind of opinion about right or wrong, whether we should be there or not. One of the the next events or periods in your life that you talked about that you said had a very big impact on you was what happened to your father and your father's business in the 1970s. He was an independent trucker, and he unfortunately suffered from what was going on with the Teamsters organizing independent truckers. And if you could talk a little bit about that, that would be interesting. Yes, uh, so I may have been 13 maybe 14 when that took place. It it was in the middle 70s. And one day everything was fine with his business. Uh, He contracted to deliver concrete products with uh, trucks owned by my uncle and my dad. And that was their business. And they did that for years before, you know, I was even born. They were already doing that before I was born. And so, you know, I'm 13 or 14 years old, and the next thing I know, uh, Teamsters Union had signed up my dad's drivers in a private meeting and sent them out on strike, causing my father to default on his contract carrying for the concrete products. And therefore, he ended up losing his business through some contract. Uh, I guess it, it was just the legality part of the contract that if he couldn't fulfill his end of the contract, that he would have to depart with his equipment and trucks. And that kind of happened overnight, really. So... What you were explaining to me is that they didn't, you know, steal his trucks and his equipment, but he was forced to sell everything that he had, all of his trucks, all of his equipment to, was it the concrete company that was now basically owned by the Teamsters? Is that how uh, it worked? The, the company remained with its own name, but the Teamsters had got the the company to sign up as a Teamsters Union shop. Mm-hmm. And so not only did he lose his trucks at that point, uh, he still needed to make uh, money, a weekly check, you know, to bring home. And therefore, he had to go back to work for the same company that was now a Teamsters shop and basically start working within the Teamster Union. Okay. And Even- that was, uh, yeah, that, that was kind of a blow to him. I mean, I could physically see it in his face. You know, he, he was not happy about anything after that with, as far as work. Right. I didn't know much about that era or Teamsters 
and I did a little bit of looking into some things yesterday after we spoke, and you probably have already done a lot of this homework, but Jimmy Hoffa was a name that I'd heard my whole life, and nobody in my family was a member of a union of any kind, but it was just one of those names that you couldn't avoid hearing, and he had... Um, it was rumored that he was involved with the mob, and that may actually be confirmed. I don't know. But it it was said that supposedly this Teamster leader, who had been a Teamster boss for a couple of decades, I think, just disappeared, and it was assumed to be a mob hit. But one of the things that I learned when researching this was that, because I, I kept scratching my head about what you were telling me yesterday, that... I just thought truck drivers went to a place and picked up their load and then took it someplace else and dropped off the load. That was my, that has always been my understanding of the trucking business. But after we spoke and I did a little bit of research into it, what I realized is the Teamsters seem to have created an environment where they more or less de facto are running a lot of different kinds of construction businesses. And one of the things I stumbled onto yesterday was a, a movie that was made called Donnie Brasco. I think that might have been a Martin Scorsese film, but I was basically explaining to the viewer how the big construction, the the big the world of big 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 business construction is really mm -hmm totally run by the Teamsters. And concrete would be a really big part of that construction business. Yes, I, I imagine it would have been considered that. Uh, I didn't do a lot of research into the background of the Teamsters. Uh, my, mind, my mind became pretty made up mm -hmm. that they were not a good element. Mm -hmm. And later... When my dad passed away, they didn't pay off his pension in full. And so, so talk I, about, I just didn't have. Talk about that because it's a pretty brutal little story about what happened to your mother. You said that your father um, passed away at a very young age. He was 54. He had some lung problems. This would have been most likely because of the fact that he was around concrete dust for 25 years. Yes. Uh, he was confined into small quarters, beating concrete loose from the inside of mixers and no protection as far as anything covering his face, you know, it, it, any kind of mask or anything. Mm-hmm. No, no respirator, uh, things that uh, you would not be allowed to do under OSHA requirements. And he ended up with lung cancer and passed away two weeks after diagnosis. Mm. And at that time, uh, you know, it, that was a pretty quick row in our lives and you know, suddenly the family was without income. Uh, he passed away in September of 1982. 
and we were getting ready to face winter time here in Indiana and really didn't have the means to pay our liquid propane bill and I resorted to going out and cutting wood and we did have a wood stove and a couple fireplaces so we were able to get heat that way but uh, it pretty much sent the, the family into chaos. And you had said that your father's pension at that time, that the amount of money that should have been delivered to your mother upon his death was a, a, around 17000 Yes, that's correct. And they issued a check to my mother who was really, really past needing money for a couple thousand and some change and she really never had any choice she went ahead and cashed the check and that was basically saying okay the, the deal's been satisfied and that's what you get mm-hmm. so so she would have needed to you know know the ropes and figure out how to fight this she's in grief she had five children at that point that's right? Yes, mm-hmm. that's correct. Uh, there, my older brothers and my older sister had their own family started. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my older brothers actually lived there with us, with his children, with his family, because it, it was a pretty hard time back in those days, uh, you know, right on up to... Uh, you know, maybe 1982, 83, it was, uh, it was a really hard life in the area. Shortage of jobs, high gas prices, uh, you name it. Right. It and was just hard to overcome. So that, that was a very, uh, defining time for you just personally in terms of, the system itself, maybe not government, but just the system had a brutality to it. That Right. Yeah. It, you know, I, I kind of liken the government to, uh, organized crime anyway. And I felt like the Teamsters were part of organized crime, maybe not the same branch, but yeah, it, it uh, it caused me to, take on a completely different role in my life. Uh, in, in fact, when my dad passed away, I was 21 years old and getting ready to make way for myself. And then all of a sudden, well, you're going to have to hang out and make sure mom's got heat and uh, whatever you can do to help bring in groceries, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. The, the house was paid off, thankfully. But... That doesn't really do a lot of good when there's not any income. Right. I I think I was making $4.25 an hour at the time in the construction industry. What were you doing at that time? Well, we did a lot of remodeling, replacing trim, uh, painting, drywall work, pouring concrete for sidewalks and patios. And we just got started on what would have been my, my friend Tom's first house. 
as a general contractor. So now, all of these years later, now you are a, a master carpenter, very good at your work. But when you were starting out, were you just getting a feel for all the different aspects of construction? Had you already studied a bit of carpentry? What was the... Actually, uh, I began in a lumber supply house as a co-op student in high school. In other words, I, I would leave high school at noon and go to work for the lumber supply house and on weekends, on Saturdays, and kind of learned about every product that there is for building from the the nails right on up to the uh, toilet paper holders and stuff that go in to finish a job. And at the time that I left there, I got started in a, a framing contractor's uh, position. Unfortunately, the job was all the way up in Indianapolis, which is 35 miles away. So I would drive on Monday morning to Indianapolis and actually sleep in my car during the nights, summer and winter both, and conduct framing tasks for them during the day and then come back home on Friday evenings. Mm. So it, it was what I did to have a job at that time, yes. Shortly after, shortly after that, I started working with my buddy who became a general contractor that I grew up with. And that's when my father passed away. Okay. So you described to me that you, that you felt that your family was close. They weren't particularly political and they weren't religious. You said that your mother had had a few outings with Jehovah's Witness was one, and there were there was another time where she went through a period of a little bit of church going and maybe bringing that to the family. But you weren't political, you weren't religious, but you described yourself as definitely a close all-American family. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, there there was maybe thirteen families in the subdivision that I lived in and none of the families within that subdivision were particularly religious nor did I hear any political speak from them mm -hmm. bad or good so, so they were more interested I mean the, the conversation was more about maybe basic survival the jobs the economy the ball games exactly Mm -hmm. What hunting season it was. Ah. <laughs> now, uh, that, that's another thing that you told me yesterday that I liked. You, you said that your father was always so busy working and running his trucking company, and you were very close to him. You said that he was your best friend, but you said he never had time uh, for some of those Things that, you know, maybe a son wants to learn from the father, but that your oldest brother had picked up the slack there, and he's the one that taught you hunting and, you know, basic firearm safety and skills. 
and fishing. Fishing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, he had a hard time teaching me with the hunting as far as finding the easy way through brush. <laughs> <laughs> I would be in the thick of briars and then saying, how do I get out of here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's, that's a time period when, you know, we, we lived along a highway and when, you know, it was hunting season for squirrels, uh, deer, uh, rabbit, mm-hmm. so forth. We walked right along the side of the road, our shotgun over our shoulder, and it was nothing new. I mean, that's just the way it was. Their shotguns were in the back windows of pickup trucks, you know. Right. And it was a rural farming community. We didn't have a farm, but that's what we were surrounded by. And, you know, we we went to all the different places that we could walk and go fishing or go hunting. And then sometimes talk mom or dad into taking us over here into the next county to go fish from this lake or that lake. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we we had a really good childhood. Well, that that's nice. In that respect. Yeah. You carried on talking about various events that had helped you a lot. I, well, I don't know if help is the right word, but they had definitely changed the way you saw reality as it was presented and the way that you saw the government. And after we talked, I thought, wow, you know, that's really interesting because... These events that you mentioned, Ruby Ridge in 1991, was that the year? 91 and 91. 92. 91, yep. okay. And then came Waco. And yeah, that... in 93. Mm-hmm. And then there, the, the, wasn't the first World Trade Center bombing also in 93? Or am I, I can't recall that I now, think... but. That that didn't have as big an impact on me. I, I seen that as, you know, there's some evil character that wanted to cause death on people, and he was a terrorist type of situation. Well, so I can see that perception, too, because it wasn't until years later that some of the, uh, you know, the FBI infiltration, the radicalization, even by our own government agencies, didn't come out until much later. Yes, yeah, I, I learned I learned differently about the the first World Trade bombing than you know from what you've seen on the surface and what the news reports were. Mm-hmm. You know uh, that digging I did quite a few years later. But as far as Ruby Ridge, you know, that was kind of like a wake-up call, you know, like, hey, wait a minute here. <laughs> you know, it's this guy. It's interesting yeah. because obviously I've heard, I've listened to Alan, I've listened to other people talk about Ruby Ridge, but that event and Waco happened before I was questioning anything much about anything. And I did not follow those events. I did follow Waco a little bit because it was, ha- it happened in Texas and it felt closer to home. 
but I did not follow Ruby Ridge. And and this morning, I took a little bit of time and I watched a PBS dot that's public broadcasting service here in the states documentary um, that was put out about it. And I have to say that considering the source, it felt fairly even-handed. And I hadn't, I did not know much about the event, except that there was a man named Randy Weaver who lived in Idaho on a mountain with his family, and that he had been under some kind of a siege by the FBI, and his wife and his son were killed. And that really was the limit of what I understood. And listening to his daughter, his daughter Sarah Weaver, spoke throughout this documentary. And I have to say that she was one of the most well-spoken women, very even, um, really put across what happened and what her memories were of that time. And I was uh, I was brought to tears several times watching this. It was such a terrible tragedy. And, of course, even though... Even though the FBI came out afterwards and said uh, what happened was wrong, even though the family was awarded a substantial settlement, and even though, as Sarah Weaver said, the FBI now uses the Ruby Ridge siege as training for their agents on what not to do, it was still, at the time, all you heard and I didn't follow it very closely, but my just all I got was is he's a crazy white supremacist holed up on a mountaintop, and and that's just not what happened. And I I felt that going through these things, you know, for listeners, they're very American. But uh, I'll bring up Alan Watt. I'll say Alan Watt used to always say that. If there was going to be some kind of resistance against worldwide tyranny, that it would be coming from Americans because he said Americans are the only ones now who have any recollection at all of personal freedom and liberty. Yeah, that, I agree. And, and so to, to listen to this, to watch this documentary and to see this and to understand, you know, this was more than 30 years ago now, how people who made mistakes, no doubt about it, mistakes were made by Randy Weaver. But essentially, he was a man who was trying to take care of his family in the way that he saw fit, whether we understand that or not. Yes, uh, I I really kind of uh, you know I heard all the seen all the headlines and heard all the broadcasts about it at the time and you know I it still didn't add up with me because in the end it had to do with a guy's personal beliefs and his own personal freedom uh, to protect his family. That's a something that's guaranteed to us the ability to do that. And the way I seen it was here's this guy, he's got these beliefs, whether I have them or not, doesn't really matter. 
but they went up and started killing members of his family. And they were, they were supposed to be the, the same people that would keep that from happening in the United States. But as I learned more about it, you know, I, I learned about the ATF and, uh, the uh, FBI being involved in it and the ATF was involved in it in a, uh, undercover way that got him to do something that was illegal. And then they turned around and used that against him in their, uh, pursuit of cleaning out undesirable thoughts and freedoms. And that would include uh, the First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Tenth Amendment, you know, right on through. And I uh, I just had a problem with it. And when Waco, uh, when the people of Waco were under siege on the final day, that was two days before my birthday. So I remembered that, you know, and then just two years later, the Oklahoma bombing incident happened, Oklahoma City bombing, and that was done on two days before my birthday. So mm-hmm. they're they're very poignant in my mind, mm-hmm. and it just it just really caused me to start questioning things. And you know, uh, the internet wasn't as uh, robust as what it is now, and it's hard to get information on some of that stuff, but. Uh, you know, there there were people that I knew down in Texas. Uh, I had went down and lived in Houston for a while, and, and I knew some people down there, and I remained in contact with them, be it by phone. But you know, they they explained to me that these guys were just living in their home, believing the the way they wanted to believe, and next thing you know, they're burned out, shot out, wiped out. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile that. Alan has talked a lot about what happened there uh, with the ATF basically doing a, a kind of a, a ritual, you know, they, they bowed to the fire there. And the, the ATF, for those of you who don't know, that's the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Enforcement Division. And, um, you know, it was, what happened at Waco was pretty horrible. And the same sniper who the FBI used, the, the same sniper who killed Vicki Weaver, two years later that sniper was also used at Waco. And I just wanted to touch again on Ruby Ridge. What Randy Weaver's crime was is that he was approached by – I'll back up the story just a little bit for people who didn't follow it or were unaware of it altogether. But he was living with his family and minding his own business kind of way. They did all their gardening. They were in – they believed because of religious beliefs that the end of the world was upon them. And his wife, Vicki Weaver, homeschooled the children and – if his daughter, if his grown daughter is any mark to go by, they really enjoyed their childhood. They liked life up on that mountain. And they had some 
it was very remote, but one of the neighboring clusters of population happened to be a a group of people who were um, self-identified as belonging to the Aryan nation. Yeah, the white supremacists. Right. That's that's where he got that trademark. That's right, and um, he was he was not a member of that group, but they were friendly enough to those people, and their children liked to play with his children, and you know whether. I, I think if, you know, whether that was a good idea or not, um, we, you either believe in personal liberty and the uh, freedom to associate with whom you want to if you're not bringing harm to someone, or you don't believe in that. And so he was essentially minding his own business, but that Aryan Nation group had already been infiltrated by the ATF. And I'm, I'm sure there was other, you know, agencies as well that had infiltrated, and they were trying to get this group on on anything. So they were under observation, and an undercover guy from the ATF approached Weaver and said, just kept on him, knew that the Weavers didn't have a lot of money and they needed some money, and he offered to pay him to uh, modify some shotguns, saw them off. Yeah, shortened shortened the barrel length. Yeah. So they were in a a situation. It was really, really remote. Uh, They had no electricity, no water, no running water. I mean, they had water, but they had to carry it up to where they lived, I guess. And... The only outing that they really had, the only social outlet, was uh, to go to this place up near them, and that's that was kind of a highlight with the with the family, with the kids, you know, get getting out, and happened to be white supremacist Aryan nation, and you know. They just enjoyed just fellowship, and I, I don't know that he really ever became a member of it or anything, but uh, I guess he was approached while he was there. I, it's, a, it's a complicated, it's one of those topics that can immediately become um, emotional for people because we're conditioned to say racist um but there it isn't a crime um it isn't a crime to want to be in a community with people who are like you what no, no matter I, you know what you're you what who you identify with as your tribe again yeah so this is where he found himself, and this is what happened to him. And because he had done this, the ATF knew that they had a federal crime on him, and they went to work to try to get him to um, infiltrate, to, to bring him, you know, some dirt back to them on the Aryan Nation. And he, my little limited understanding from a day of looking at it is that he didn't feel that he was a part of them, and he didn't want to do that. 
So this is where things spiral out of control for him. Yes, I, I, I don't really know whether he was actually a, a member uh, of that particular group. Uh, I understood that they socialized because they were in the same area. I'm that, not even sure that they were that close. That was my understanding, too, and I think that's the way his daughter characterized it, is, that, you know, these this was a social event for us as a family. So, kind of like going to the county fair, right? <laughs> you know, I, I I don't agree with uh, with white supremacy or whatever the Aryan nation, neo Nazi, whatever they are. I don't agree with them, but it's not my place to judge whether they should be allowed to hang out, live, have their own beliefs. They're their beliefs are uh, guaranteed a, as a right given by God and not the government. Right. And the government cannot take away a right that God has given. Right. And that's their, the government themselves stated in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that those rights were given by God. Yes. And uh, I'm with you. I mean, these, these, this is not beliefs that would be for me at all, but I don't have to associate with people who believe that. But I, I wouldn't want, I, I don't want the government telling me that I have to believe a certain way or think a certain way and then vilifying me or painting me as something that I'm not. That's yeah. that's the very nature of freedom. Yeah, it's the essence and, of freedom. And the essence of no freedom is vilification of individuals, groups, religious religions mm -hmm. that uh, don't necessarily meet the standards of what right thinking good citizens would do right and uh i don't i don't agree with that it's it's not what we were designed we were designed to self-govern ourselves and not be told what we can and what we can't do as long as we don't harm anybody or bring harm to anybody mm -hmm. by what we're doing Right. And uh, they have that right to carry on life like that. Mm -hmm. there, there was one other interesting little thing that I learned in watching this documentary about the Weavers, and that was, you know how we've heard Alan Watt talk about Bo Greitz? Was he involved in uh, negotiating, maybe? He was involved in negotiating. The context that I had heard Alan speak of Bogreitz often was that, um, you know, essentially Alan has always said, don't join anything. If you join a group, you can, you, it's a guarantee that it's going to be infiltrated by somebody, the CIA, FBI, ATF, you name it. There's going to be somebody there keeping tabs on it. Don't join groups. And yeah. his example of that was often Bogreitz, 
who was a decorated military veteran, um, had gained a, he had run for uh, some political um, election that way back when, and he had gained a certain amount of popularity amongst um, people who would have identified as patriots or on the what they then called patriot radio. And so when Randy Weaver's wife was already killed, dead, the FBI did not seem to be aware of that, and she had been in the kitchen on the floor dead for a week, and he was not coming out. And he would not talk to the FBI negotiators. They brought in Bo Greitz. And the reason they did was because he had this popularity with the Patriot-type people. And Bo was able to negotiate Randy Weaver. First, I think the girls, the, the daughters, left the house, and eventually Randy Weaver came out. But what w- the way that Alan has told us what Bo did is after 9-11, here he has this following of patriots. And he's gathered a lot of names the way they always do. I have a survey for you. Or if you believe in your Second Amendment rights or your, you know, then uh, sign here or call in or tell us. So he had been gathering names of patriots for years in this position as a popular war, you know, veteran kind of fellow. And after 9-11, he came out and said, if you want to know who's behind 9-11, just take a look at these, um, you know, conspiracy theorists that, you know, the, the people who believe in the black helicopters. That's where you're, that is where you're going to find who's behind it. So in other words, Bo Greitz sold out the people who had been following him, the people that he had professed to be one of them and a believer in rights and freedom. So it's the cautionary tale is don't join groups. Yes, uh, uh, I, I believe that thoroughly. Uh, I was involved for a very limited time with a group, and I found out that the group really didn't care uh about facts surrounding different events, uh, historical facts about individuals that they became part of. Uh, you know, I, I watched most of the members of a group that I was involved with jump on a Trump train and become Trump deplorables like overnight, and you couldn't tell them anything about the history of Donald Trump mm-hmm. or what he had been involved in. And, you know, it, it's something that. Oh, that, any- that is, that is interesting. And there, there was something that you had mentioned to me about that, that I wanted to talk about. But before we jumped off this other, I was thinking, um, you know, the way in which everything is controlled, the way that we're given things. When I was studying, um, again, Waco and really for the first time, the Ruby Ridge, I was thinking about how things are presented, including the way in which people come out and protest and the protest songs that they're given. And the, you know, in other words, the way the whole thing is painted. And I stumbled on a song called Ruby Ridge. 
and I it for it just made me uh, it, it brought to mind that movie Wag the Dog, where you you basically have the U.S. behind a completely fictionalized war that's going on somewhere in Eastern Europe, so that they can take the eye uh, the public's eyes off of a scandal that's at home, but the the lengths that they went through, including having a song composed, putting it on a record where it's kind of got a scratchy sound to it, going and putting it in the um, the Smithsonian's uh, archive so that it looked like it really was an 80-year-old album record. These are the lengths that our ruling elite will go to to keep us in the dark, to keep us believing the false narrative that these agencies are always the good guys and the crackpots who want to be left alone to, you know, have their crackpot ideas are, they, they don't really want to be left alone. They want to cause mayhem and chaos. They're terrorists. They're homegrown terrorists. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the motif that you see with, uh, all the different uh, law enforcement shows that are out right now. Uh, I know some people that religiously watch those shows and they are, they're, they're beyond uh, waking up. You can't really reach them. Uh, I, I think there's a level of brainwashing that they've got that, no matter what happens anywhere, the good guys are the FBI, NCIS. I, I don't know how many different crime shows they might have out there, but it seems to be lengthy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's definitely indoctrination that, you know, you, you see them as the good guys. Absolutely. And, um, and that's unfortunate, uh, I know some people now talk about, well, the FBI used to be the good guys. Now they've suddenly become compromised. Just yeah. So. Well, you know, I I had mentioned maybe talking to you earlier. I'm not sure if it was yesterday or maybe a conversation before, but I I really view the whole scheme of things as far as government, the elite as a mafia, as organized crime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the good old movies that you used to see, you know, they'd have a, they'd have a, a beat cop on their payroll and they'd grab a judge here and that sort of thing playing out. But now they have presidents and prime ministers and senators and congressmen and all the folks that make up government, they they have compromised through different various uh, remedies. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just like Jeffrey Epstein, you know, kept the little black book. Well, I'm sure not everything was in a little black book. I think the book was much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> You you were saying that even after all of these uh, events in your lifetime, watching Vietnam, the Teamsters, uh, what happened to your father, seeing Ruby Ridge and Waco, you still 
when 9-11 happened, you went to the default position. And, yes, I did. Yeah. I, I, I bought what they said hook, line, and sinker. And it was four or five years until I got information enough. First of all, I was involved a lot with my own life at the time because I was going through some things myself. But I started getting information, little tidbits here and there, and then started watching documentaries and, you know, I mean, it's just they're facts that can't be erased, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you haven't already been brainwashed, you cannot be brainwashed into believing what the narrative was at the time. I mean, it's just too convenient. You know, they find a pristine passport on the (laughs) sidewalk. They don't find any jet engines, no tail sections, no wings, nothing like that. But they find a passport. Right. And uh, then you you look at uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and you see a big hole in the ground. And they're telling you that, a plane vaporized <laughs> when, it ha- when it hit the ground and there's nothing left of it. Oh, well, we found some stuff eight miles away over here, you know. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you're, you're asking me to believe something impossible and any objective uh, questioning person can, can see through that. Right. If you can't see through that, then you have been completely brainwashed. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of people have been, and and we continue to see that with you know what we've lived through the last three years now is that there are some people that no matter what you show them and how carefully you try to walk them through what is happening, they are incapable of of absorbing it. They just cannot take it in. Yeah. Well, like one of the first things that convinced me that 9-11 wasn't as it was portrayed was a photograph of Shanksville, Pennsylvania crash site. Mm -hmm. I I believe it was flight 98, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I took a look at that and and now I've seen the headlines and these people were heroes that got control of the plane or got control of the hijackers and the plane ended up dive bombing into the ground and disappearing. And it just didn't work out for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't reconcile that at all. And I think if, if people really took a look at just that picture right there, uh, the initial aftermath with, the very first responders there looking at an indentation in the earth with no wreckage, nothing recognizable as a aircraft at all, much less, I mean, there wasn't anything that you could identify as having to do with the plane. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, like I said, it was three or four years, five years after the fact that I actually seen the photograph and I'm thinking back to 
the narrative of the initial broadcast during the time. And when I seen that picture, I was like, well, a plane didn't crash there. Anybody can see that. You know, I, and, and it's the same thing like a, an aluminum body aircraft flying through structural concrete and steel, some metal supports that are four foot wide, four foot by four foot. And that's just going to knock a wing off the airplane. It's going to fall to the ground. It's, it's going to be down on the ground. It's going to knock the engines off. It's, it's not going to just vaporize and disappear into the building. And, you know, I just, I could not believe that I was suckered in to believing anything about that after I seen that type of photographic evidence. You know, one, one thing that I talked to Alan about early on, um, was, it, it really is kind of that default position or what he would call your very earliest indoctrination that is so skillfully, you know, now the early indoctrination seems to be no little boy, you're a girl or, or we're melting, you know, the climate is heating up super fast, that kind of thing. But for most generations going back a long time, the, the, at least 150 years in this country, it has been your country, your nation, and the, the stars and stripes and all of that. And I remember telling him that even though I didn't consider, I, I hadn't been a so-called patriot, like at the time of Ruby Ridge, listening to Patriot Radio, none of that, and didn't really consider myself I mean, yeah, I loved my country, but I, it just wasn't a rabid thing where I was always talking about the Constitution. And yet, in a, in a movie, if I'm watching a movie or I see some footage of a body coming back with the flag draped over it and the family is standing there crying, I, I mean, the sense of belonging to the country and the sense that the country is good is so strong. Yes. The emotional inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, he said, well, it can, it takes a lot of thinking and a lot of time to be able to separate yourself out of those emotions so that your emotions aren't played so that you can really clearly see what is happening. And you were describing that it was after you really got into questioning 9-11 and that, and years more of the research that you finally ended up discovering Alan and then kind of taking the whole seeking to a different level of understanding. Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, really, I think the powers that be were a lot better at covering things up. But really, if you get down to it, it it's just, the internet came along and kept them from being able to cover things up mm -hmm. the way that they had in the past. So some of it is brought out. It's so blatant that if you just use a minuscule amount of common sense, <laughs> you can navigate through the cover ups the lies, the deception, 
the division that's caused and that sort of thing right there is where I was. The internet benefited me because I wasn't afraid to get in and dive in and look into it. I and the, I took the time. Right, and I think this is a really good time for me to say I wanted to share with listeners, um, and especially those who go and check out the little MP4 that we'll make of this talk so that we put some images in there and we'll put them up on the um, Alan Watts CTTM YouTube and BitChute channels. You can see some of the visual images. You sent me pictures of your carpentry, some beautiful homes that you did the kitchen cabinetry in, a boathouse that you did the cabinets for, some of the uh, close-up work of you working on the what you'd call the face frame, I think it is, the frame around some bookshelves or shelving. Beautiful work. And I bring this up because uh, I think that ultimately through your lifetime starting out and learning the trade and carp in the construction business, you did become a master carpenter. And when I look at your work, when I look at the mind, uh, the, the detail oriented kind of mind that does that work, then I understand that you are someone who given the tool of the internet could really dive in and do some great homework because you're going to pay attention to detail and you're going to compare things and say, does, is, is, is this even? Does this match up? And I think right. if you, if you just shared a little bit about the, some of the intense research that you did for this group that you were a member of for a while, um, where it, in regards to what you discovered about Donald Trump, I just think it's interesting. A, because it shows the the research that you were able to do, and B, it shows how unwilling people who were so careful, you know, so well indoctrinated, they were just completely unwilling to accept what you brought them. Yeah. You know, uh, probably from, I'd say, the middle 80s, 1985 on up, Donald Trump made several appearances on uh, television talk shows. Uh, Oprah Winfrey had him on. Montel Williams had him on. And way back, I think even Rona Barrett had him on. I don't even know if you'll remember her. I do. I remember her, yeah. Yeah. But one of the mainstay questions, especially with Oprah Winfrey, is what would Donald Trump do what would President Donald Trump do in this situation? Interesting. And, and looking back, that to me was the beginning of the grooming of Donald Trump for presidency. And I, I, I spent a tremendous amount of time in Florida and was aware of a lot of the deeds that had to do with Donald Trump just from real life. I, I, I met people that had actually worked on jobs 
that had to do with Donald Trump. And uh, I even knew of some electricians. Uh, I didn't know the owner of the company or anything, but these guys were out driving the truck and on the job sites and doing the work. And I watched this electrical contractor get put out of business because he didn't get paid on the job that Donald Trump was uh, responsible for paying for. And to me, I was an independent contractor. That was very important information because, yeah, hey, it'd be great. Yeah, I, I worked over here on this job for Donald Trump, and yeah, maybe it's part of notoriety and everything. Well, you actually but, told me that this electrical contractor, um, when you mentioned it yesterday, you said that he didn't get paid, but he not only didn't get paid, but it was such a significant amount, he declared bankruptcy and his wife left him. That's correct. And uh, I don't know what happened to the, uh, there was a couple of different guys that I knew that worked for that electrical contractor. I don't know what really became of them. I know they're smart enough to where they probably had no problem the next day they could just go right over and start working for another electrical contractor. But the owner of that business uh, suffered greatly from it. But these are the kind of things that, you know, that were part imparted to me early. And so he decided that he was going to run for president in 2015 and announced his candidacy. And because I was involved with this one group, I decided that it was uh, an obligation of mine to go ahead and learn more about him, to dig into it. And at that time, I was an administrator for one-fourth of this state of Indiana, and there was quite a few people that I felt like depended on me. They nominated me for the, the position. I didn't ask for it or anything. They just knew that I was above board and would look into things. And uh, I shared a lot of good information with them, and a lot of that information came from Alan Watt. <laughs> That's great. And so I did. I, I looked into it. I, I did a pretty thorough, deep dive. I mean... When you get in there, one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And, you know, Donald Trump used to say, yeah, my dad loaned me a million dollars to start out with, and I made it into this empire. Well, he got a million dollars from his father, but he was right back into his father's account for another $3.95 million because he blew the $1 million and he had to have more money to cover the debt that he had created mm. with blowing the the initial million dollars that he said his, his father loaned him. And then I got into uh, a bankruptcy that had to do with the Taj Mahal in Atlantic City, where Donald Trump actually purchased that establishment from Meyer Lansky. Wow. Meyer Lansky is at that time he was the head of the known mafia mm -hmm. 
at least the front man that anybody got to see. Right. And he was $3.95 billion in debt at the time of the bankruptcy. There were 74 different banks involved, and he got bailed out by a Rothschild banking agent by the name of Wilbur Ross. Uh huh. Wilbur Ross went on to become the Secretary of Commerce. I remember that. <laughs> for the United States. Another friend of Donald Trump became the Secretary of Labor. Mm hmm. His name was Alex Acosta. Mm hmm. And he was the guy that got Jeffrey Epstein the the sweet deal, as they called it, down in Florida when there was a uh, a sex crime type of crime against Epstein as far as dealing with underage girls and so forth. And so he got this deal where he was put into a minimum security prison. He could check out during the daytime, go about his business, come back and check back in. Wow. And that, that was a shortened sentence. It was supposed to be 18 months. But anyway, you know, he, I, I guess Acosta got a lot of flack over that as well. He should have, but he ended up becoming secretary of labor. Mm -hmm. But uh, when you presented, you, you presented a nice tidy package of various kinds of information, but these guys that were raw, raw just did not want to take it in. No, no, they, they, uh, they wanted to hear certain things and they heard it. Mm hmm. I think just about anybody can go to a, a group of people and tell them what they want to hear, and that person will somehow become important within the group. I, on the other hand, was ostracized, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, to the point where I, I just kind of threw my hands up and voluntarily left because I'd say... 90% of the people within the group became Trump deplorables. Um. And, you know, the individual Donald Trump I have absolutely nothing against. The businessman Donald Trump, uh, he's not a good businessman. He was never a good businessman. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have a president of the United States that's been in some kind of court case over 3,000 times. You know, uh, one was actually a RICO suit in the Southern District of New York Federal Court. RICO, RICO is racketeering, um, exactly. Inter Money laundering, fraud, right, right. extortion. He was named with uh, 12 other people in that suit, and George... Soros was one of those co-defendants. Ooh. And George Soros was actually a business partner of Trump's son-in-law, who was his chief advisor. I think I remember reading a little bit of that. Yes, absolutely. That Soros had even um, financially backed to the tune of many hundreds of millions or quite a stack of money to Jared yeah, he. Kushner. I think he had a, a a credit accredited that particular real estate venture with two hundred and fifty million. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you know, there there's a lot of flimsy 
dealings going on. There, there were like 79 different companies that Donald Trump had control of that were under an alias name. Uh, I was actually at a hotel near Vero Beach. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know it was his or anything at the time, but I was actually working with bees, honeybees, and one of the fellows that was with us was a beekeeper from Russia. His name was Valentino. And he says, why don't we just stop here for a few minutes and kind of come in and get rested up a little bit? So we did, and everybody in the, the whole hotel lobby and bar area were Russian. <laughs> I mean, me and, and my partner, who was an elderly man at the time, great person, Henry Parker, but uh, yeah, we were the only people there that that spoke English, basically. Everything mm-hmm. else was going on around us was uh, in some sort of Russian dialect or, you know, I, I didn't understand really. So, you know, and then I later found out that that was property owned by Donald Trump. Interesting. Well, I think that we are more or less out of time here. But uh, did I? We we spoke a little bit about a book called Red Mafia. Yes. Did we talk about that? Yeah. Or or Mafia. It's spelled with a Y in there. But that was that's an interesting one um, to give you a story about. Basically, the Russian mafia that that was brought in uh, during the time that Trump would have been developing um, his casinos in New Jersey. But it shows this interesting uh, organized crime infiltration by Russian mafia all up and down the eastern seaboard from New Jersey down to Florida. Fascinating book, really, really interesting But I think that we might just have to talk about that book and some of your other things that you've uncovered. But I I will say that we'll put in more of the images of your beautiful cabinetry. Again, I just, to me, when I looked at that, I'm like, oh, okay, I see why you're the kind of thinker that really digs into something and, and wants to see it from a bunch of different angles and keeps uncovering and seeing what measures up and what doesn't. Yeah, that that's a that's a different spark of an outlook. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I never really thought about it like that before, but I, I can see where that kind of goes hand in hand a, a, as it pertains to some of the things that I do. Well, sure, because, you know, I mean, we're not exactly what we do. That's not really who we are or all of us, but it certainly if you excel at something, it speaks to qualities that you have and attention span, attention to detail. I'm, I'm not the most detail oriented person. I, I don't think I could be a master carpenter. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of people are satisfied after it's there, but sometimes they go to, uh, a hard time waiting for it to get there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've so. certainly enjoyed um, 
talking with you today, and I, I hope that other people have gotten something out of a little bit of your life as it fits into the backdrop of some of the bigger events that have happened in this country in the last 30, 35 years? Well, the, the pleasure is all mine. I, I enjoy uh, speaking about such things. Uh, unfortunately, the audience that accept such things is very limited. Yes. And, and I, I can't control that. And that's okay with me. I, it doesn't frustrate me. It, I just take it as it is and move on. That's right. I, I, I'm not expecting, you know, just huge stacks of people to want to hear and learn about real history. But for those of you who are curious to see events and to see the times we're living through from the perspective of the people that are living through it, I hope that you'll continue to tune in every Thursday for a little bit of real history. And, and thank you again, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. You, Our, you can take that work that Alan left and carry on with it. And I, I, am, I just enjoy seeing that his website remains up and running and that his word still gets out. And now venturing in to your words and Weston's words, I think it's a great thing, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Thanks, Jim. And we'll, we'll talk again. Okay, good night, Melissa. All right. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will tune in again next week. And please go to cuttingthroughthematrix.com. There's thousands, literally thousands of hours of talks by Alan Watt, and they're there for your free download. It's such an education, and that really is the real history. So thanks again, and y'all stay out of trouble. Well, I've got something that's